Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 30th, 2017, and my guest is Anthony Gill, a professor of political science at the University of Washington. He hosts the podcast Research on Religion, which you can find at researchonreligion.org. He appeared on Econ Talk in January of 2014 to discuss the economics of religion, and he is back today to talk about a recent paper he's written on tipping, the leaving a little extra on top of your restaurant bill or your taxi fare for the server in the restaurant or the cab driver. Tony, welcome back to Econ Talk. Great to be here. Thanks, Russ. So there's been some unease about tipping in in recent years. Some people are trying to give it up. Some restaurants have stopped tipping as a practice. Uh, there's been some social commentary that tipping is a bad thing. Uh, describe some of that unease and criticism, and um, then we'll talk about why tipping uh, seems to persist despite those unease that unease. Yeah, about five years ago or so, there was a trend in the restaurant industry toward the no-tip slash living wage model of providing for the wait staff. And there's a a spate of articles and and popular uh, journals from Market Watch and Fortune Magazine Slate that said tipping is going out of fashion. It's not uh, pleasant for the customers and it would be more efficient for the restaurants just to have a flat fee for the service or to price it into the the actual price you pay at the end and leave less to the the customer. Uh, That happened in several dozen restaurants. Most of them tended to be upper-scale, boutique type of restaurants, Uh, but the movement really hasn't uh, caught fire. It really hasn't moved anywhere, and I was watching this out of my eye. I teach tipping as a, a way of teaching various economic principles in my political economy class, and I said, hmm, if this, if the no-tip movement gets any traction, I won't have anything to talk about in my class anymore. <laughs> so uh, fortunately, it didn't go away, and I thought more about it, and I said, this is such a wonderful institution. There is one thing, though. It's not just a, a recent trend that people are, dis- are uncomfortable with uh, tipping. It, it goes way back into the 1700s. In fact, there was a, there's a nice book, uh, probably one of the only things, uh, only books written about tipping by Carrie Seagrave. And back in the 1750s or 1760s in London, the nobility tried to ban tipping, and there was a riot that uh, the servers or the valets that were receiving the tips uh, said, no, no, you better keep those tips. And so the uh, nobility backed away. So history tends to repeat itself. And that's really interesting. I, I think about my own tipping uh, life. It's definitely one of the hard parts about adulthood. When you go from being a kid and being treated by your parents to being an adult where you're paying for your own meal and you've got to leave a tip, there is some unease because – it's hard to know what the right thing to do is at first, or at least there's some art to it, or at least there should be, as, as we'll discuss. So what are the arguments for tipping? Why, why is this a, a custom or norm that persists? Well, I make three arguments in my paper, and I'm sure we'll discuss them one at a time. But the most common one and the one I teach in my political economy class that resonates most with students is that it helps to solve a principal agent problem wherein the restaurant manager cannot be on the floor monitoring the servers all the time. They need to have some kind of incentive to make sure that the servers are doing a good job and picking up on the subtle cues that the customers are giving. Um, This gives more power to the customer, actually. It allows them to say, hey, I would like to be left alone with my date here, or could you please hurry the service along? I have to get to the Broadway show. The curtain's about to go up. Uh, So that solves the principal agent problem. The other argument I make is that it allows for voluntary price discrimination, and this is a little bit more of a subtle and unusual argument, but it allows the restaurant owner to shift the decision about how much to charge for service to the customer. Um, Now, one would think that one would naturally not 
pay anything for that because we always tend to want to pay the least amount for anything that we can get. But the, the fact that there's a norm, there's a suggested amount that we know in society, the 15% or 20%, which helps, which should, by the way, Russ, help you alleviate some of that uncertainty there. Your parents should have taught you a, a good 15% tip is what you should leave. So that, that sounds pretty easy. And now with the smartphones, we all have our easy calculator for these things. Um, but if, if, you can, if everybody knows this norm and we can shift that cost to the customer, it actually is very beneficial to the restaurant owner. The last argument I make has to deal, it's on a more macro level and has to deal with social norms within society that I think tipping helps to promote norms of trust in society that help promote anonymous trade in large market systems. I'm going to defend my parents to start okay. with because if – Everybody tipped exactly 15%. Mm-hmm. There's not much role for tipping. It's just a strange, uh, weird custom that is developed to divide the payment to the restaurateur uh, between the formal check and the tip part. It's just a 15% surcharge. It's on all prices. And so that would kind of actually ruin the entire idea of tipping as a principal agent problem that – it's designed to monitor the performance of the server monitoring being done by the customer rather than the employer, so the restaurant owner. So, and we're just, I, let's stick with restaurant owners just to make this simple for now. Of course, there's tipping in a few other places, and maybe we'll talk about it. But my point is, is that if everybody just blindly and mindlessly tips 15% for good service and bad service, then then it's not a very interesting institution. The the institution becomes interesting. When you have the freedom to tip ten or twenty or nothing, uh, as some pe- and some people will cruelly uh, leave a penny as a tip because they're either angry or offended by the service. So um, I think when I when I said I was uneasy, it wasn't because I couldn't multiply times point one five or one point one five if you want to depending on how you're, you're paying the bill. But uh, it's because it's, I wasn't sure whether – should I tip 17 percent, 20? Is it a really good service? What if it's not good service? And I think the – even though I'm very sympathetic to your argument for tipping and I've made it myself many times in class and elsewhere, uh, it, it, there is a challenge when people don't feel comfortable leaving a small tip because then it doesn't perform its function. Right. So maybe I should clarify it's not – uh, norm that just says you must always leave 15%, but within 15% within a range. And in fact, if you're feeling much more generous, if you had wonderful service and uh, the, the wait staff was just wonderful, you know, feel free to leave 20, 25, 30%, and some people even leave much more. I know I have on many occasions. Uh, but on the other hand, there's also the ability to withhold. And I, I remember this being taught to me when I was younger that, oh, if the service, you should always tip 15%, but if the service is isn't really that good, you know, drop it down to 10% or 5%. If it gets really bad, and I've been to restaurants with my family where it's, it's been horrible, we'll just walk out with no tip as a, a, a signal. So I know many people, when I, I talk to them about this, say, well, yeah, I feel like I always have to leave 15%. So why doesn't the restaurant just put 15% on and make it easy for everybody else? I say, well, the possibility that you can withhold the tip is really what motivates the principal agent uh, problem, or at least the solution to the principal agent problem, as well as the possibility that uh, you could leave 20, 25, 30%. And of course, some restaurants with large parties in particular, will, meaning if a lot of people are eating at the table, uh, put a tip automatically on the bill uh, without giving you any chance to do your job. Uh, because in that case, if you happen to be either forgetful, cruel, selfish, whatever it is, or not willing to live up to the expectation of the tip, you've imposed a very high cost on the server, and the owner doesn't want that to happen. Uh, so they often will impose a, a mandatory tip, which is an oxymoron. Um, well, but. that's interesting. I, I have to admit here that part of my interest in this is that I used to work in the pizza industrial complex, or big pizza as it's sometimes called, <laughs> and um, the restaurant that we were at would always add tips on to parties, I think it was six or seven or more, especially if they were teenagers. Yep. 
Uh, there was a big concern about that. And this, for me, in class, this opens the door to teaching about collective action problems. Because if you have six or ten people at the table, everybody kind of wants to chip in. But, you know, maybe I don't have to chip in as much because that person next to me just flashed a, a big wad of cash and they'll chip in a little bit more. And so the, the restaurant owners knew that uh, if you had a large party, it would be difficult for people to calculate that. And they, they made it easier. And the same thing with teenagers. And this was a big benefit for them to encourage uh, business to come in because I knew the the wait staff at this restaurant whenever uh, uh, you know six ten twelve teens would come in uh, after a, a school prom or something nobody wanted to serve them because they knew they would be horrible, horrible tippers yeah. but the restaurant owner wants these people to come in not only to fill the tables but you know when they graduate and they have families they want them to keep coming back as well and so uh, they needed that way there's this kind of additional step to okay in this situation we need to make Make this tip mandatory so that the servers will actually go and give service to these tables. So I want to go a little bit deeper into the principal agent problem. And I, to do that, I think we should talk a little bit about what the nature of the service is. And I, we, you talk in the paper about the difference between a tip jar at, say, Starbucks or a tip jar at the front of a, of a fast food place where you you not really being served in the normal sense of a waiter or waitress, but just they're being the food's being handed to you across a counter to a sit-down restaurant where you're going to be there for a while, and there's a much larger uh, dimension to what is called good service. In the first case, in the case of the counter, it's did the food get passed across to you with a smile, ideally. Uh, but in the case of a restaurant, it's quite subtle, and I think that plays a very large role. So let's let's just brainstorm for a minute about – the nature of service. You gave a couple examples already. Uh, sometimes you want to be left alone. Sometimes you're in a hurry. If you have a reason, you have a plane to catch or a show to see. Uh, what are some of the other aspects of this? Yeah, when I, I talk to people about the restaurant industry, they often view these jobs as very low-skilled jobs and having worked in, in the big pizza industry. Um, I know that it, it takes a lot of skills to read people's moods and whether they want their glass refilled. That's another example. Do, do I want somebody constantly refilling my water glass or do I want them to leave me alone? Uh, can I chat up the, the wait staff at all? I, I oftentimes like talking to the waiter or the waitress to find out what are things to do in this town. I haven't been here before. Uh, sometimes I, I don't want that. Um, so there's a lot of these different kinds of things. And sometimes I like a, a server that likes to be fun and, and jokes with you. Other times I just want to get to business. And so these, it's interesting because these are moods that I have throughout in various times in a week, and it's it's difficult for anybody to really know that when you just walk in or standing waiting to be seated. So, having a person being able to pick up those subtle body uh, type or those uh, body movement clues are, are really it's a really tough job. Yeah, it's it's definitely an art. And I, and the other issue I always think of is when when things aren't going well in the restaurant, which often has nothing to do with the waiter or waitress. Mm -hmm. I often want to just be reassured that I haven't been forgotten, that it's coming soon, the food's coming, or whatever it is. And so that's just one more dimension to – I mean, there's really two dimensions, right? There's how much interaction do I have with the server and what's the nature and quality of it? And then there's the plating, obviously, the putting the food down and all that and clearing of the table and knowing when to bring things and all. Those are things that are relatively easy to – to, to do and to teach, but that other part, as you say, is a subtle uh, art, and I think the basics of delivering the food, you don't need tipping. I just think it's really important to get that across because those can be monitored. That performance can easily be monitored by the, the restaurant owner or the manager. It's those subtle things that can't be monitored, and it's not um, – it doesn't matter how much you walk around the room as the manager to keep an eye on things. And nobody wants a manager hovering over the table either, by the way. Right. It's really the problem. To me, the problem is only the customer. It's, a, it's, a, it's, I would think, I think of it as a Hayekian local knowledge problem. Only a customer has the information about whether the server's doing a good job. Exactly. Yeah. I, in fact, I use that in the paper to say that the, the knowledge is very, very local at that 
specific moment in time in that specific table. A, a, a table just 10 feet away might be entirely different, and so you have to treat that differently. And so you need these people that can use that information and provide the best service possible. I, and I, just, I think that's just a, a really neat thing, and I've talked to many wait staff about how do they do this? How do you know who's going to be a good tipper, who's not going to be a good tipper? It's just a, a fascinating science of body language. And of course, that just introduces another principal agent problem, which we'll which we'll come to, which is as the as the custom has evolved of giving me the customer. Sorry about that pun. Um, <laughs> probably isn't really. It might not even be a pun. I don't know. But as the the customer's control over this has evolved to being a non trivial one, because tips are a very large part of of a server's income often mm-hmm. uh, in certain industries. Certain types of restaurants, certainly in the in uh, bars and places where alcohol is served, where tips tend to be larger, which means that the salaries tend to be lower and the tips tend to be a bigger proportion. In those kind of settings, uh, now it's up to me. I have the power to to monitor, but I also have the power to shirk my job as a monitor and not give a tip or to give a right. lousy tip. And so, on the surface, it doesn't seem to solve the problem at all. Yes, and I think that's where the strength of the norm becomes very, very important. And I think that we, I don't know if you want to talk about that now or save that for later, but it's the, the interesting thing is that in order for this principal agent problem to be solved, it really has to be, the, the norm of tipping has to be uh, shared very broadly within society. I mean, there are many instances where um, people will not tip. Uh, we, we're out here in the Pacific Northwest, and so we get a number of tourists from China, and tipping is not the norm there. So when a tourist comes over and is very unfamiliar with the, with, is not familiar with the norm of tipping, they won't often leave a tip, and that creates problems. Actually, I've talked to a number of waiters and waitresses that say, this, this is a problem. We, we see uh, you know, a tourist from this country, and we really don't want to serve that table. We'd rather pick a different table, and there's oftentimes uh, a little bit of argument or scuffle amongst the wait staff of who's going to serve this table where they know it's not going to, uh, where you're not going to have a tip. So the, the norm of tipping really has to be shared broadly and has to be fairly strong, that people have to obey it. And I think that in and of itself is a really interesting puzzle because a thinly rational person, you know, strictly speaking, is not going to want to ever leave a tip after the meal, after the, the bill has been delivered, because why should you? Zero is Paying zero is better than paying 10% more. Well, I, the obvious counterexample of that is you might want to eat in that restaurant again. The server is not going to be too happy to see you. And uh, but, but there is always the challenge, as you point out in the paper, of when you're in a city you've never been to before, you probably won't be back, or in particular if you're in a foreign country, um, right. where you, you may not even know the norms. Uh, you gave an example where a, a person comes from a country without a norm of tipping to a norm place where there's tipping. I've been in countries where there's, there's a norm of no tipping. I didn't know that first, <laughs> and I'm mm-hmm. over-tipping, uh, making a lot of people really happy, no doubt. Um, and, and in certain – in foreign countries, some things are tipped that aren't tipped here. Some things are not tipped there that are tipped here, and the amounts are different. The norms right. of how much the amounts are. So and that's why people read guidebooks and Google before they go on a trip if they're smart. But um, that, that is a big challenge. But certainly when you travel in a city that you've never been in before, don't expect to come back to, or if you just get a cab driver in a large mm-hmm. city uh, where you will probably never get that cab driver again, you are uh, – you in, in, in some dimension, I would disagree with the, this characterization, but in some dimension, it's irrational to tip. Right. I, I I think in a thinly rational sense, it is irrational to tip, but that's why we have thick rationality, and that's why economics needs to pay attention to norms and how we solve these these larger problems at the micro level. So let's just stick a little bit longer with this, the principal agent. I just want to raise the the uh, and and I just, to make it clear, I think tipping is a really beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. But I am open to the possibility as it outlives some of its usefulness. Uh, so I want to I want to be a little bit critical of of my view and and your implicit view in the paper, which is, you know, it solves this principal agent problem. Well, there are other ways to solve it. The most obvious way is uh, you fire bad servers. We haven't talked about it yet, but obviously tipping by changing the amount that a person can earn. So a bad server gets lousy tips and then has low income and decides to go do something else. 
uh, a good server is rewarded and is enthusiastic about the job and stays in that industry or in, and at that restaurant. But the other way to do that is just to fire people who do a bad job and give raises to the best servers. What's wrong with that? Well, the question is, how do we know who the bad servers are or not? Now, obviously, if a, a customer has a really bad uh, service at a table at one point in time, they can stomp up to the manager and say, this person was just the worst wait staff that we've ever had, and that, that is information. But that doesn't always get communicated all the time. And again, if you're dealing with fairly slim margins here where people say, well, they just didn't fill the water glass enough. I, I don't think I'm going to come back to this restaurant next week or next month, and we're just going to take it off our list of places that we go. The management never gets those signals. And one of the things that I argue in here in terms of the principal agent problem is that servers who are not very good at this, who cannot pick up the cues, who are not very good interacting with people, will get signals themselves and, in essence, will fire themselves. They might see another waitress uh, in the restaurant just raking in the tips that night, and they only have a paltry sum at the end of the night for themselves. And they say, well, you know, I don't know why I'm not doing a good job here. So they either can try to improve themselves or say, maybe I should go choose some other type of occupation. And that's beneficial to the industry as a whole. First of all, if you have people... In, in essence, firing themselves or leaving the industry, that it eliminates a huge bureaucratic headache because laws today make it very difficult to get rid of people. But on the other, uh, the other side of it is that overall uh, quality of service in restaurants will improve as the low-quality servers filter themselves out because they're just not seeing the rewards that others get. Well, you point out in the non-tip system, management doesn't get the signal, but of course, they don't get the signal in the tipping system either. The server gets the signal, right. and then it's, we rely on the fact that servers who don't get good tips leave or try to improve. Maybe they try harder. Maybe they put a smile on their face. Maybe they watch the other servers and figure out what, what works and what doesn't, uh, and then they're incentivized to, to, to do a good job. But I'll, let me pick an alternative system. I could think of a few. We could probably think of a few if we thought about it longer with a few more, but – one thing you could do, which of course, um, let's think about let's think about the quality of the food. Mm-hmm. So the food comes to my table. Uh, I ask for the steak to be medium and it's well done, or uh, something is almost raw. I might send it back, and that's an observable event. But a lot of times I'll just say, "Well, that wasn't very good." It's interesting. I don't tip the chef. I don't tip the cook, although some restaurants divide tips up. But this is I'm talking about specifying it. We we assume that the manager can monitor that part of the quality equation, right? And at the end mm-hmm. of the meal, when I pay, if the manager is running the cash register, often not, but the manager can be there and can sample from the clientele and ask, did you enjoy your meal tonight? How was your service? Uh, did your server do a good job? And even if we might feel uncomfortable being critical but publicly about that, often the manager could see in the, in the face of the customer whether they were happy or not with the service or the food. So I just think there are different ways. You could have a survey card at the end. You could With the check could come a, a survey card. If you fill out the survey card, you get a discount. Um, so it's tipping is the one way to solve it. There are other ways to solve it. Obviously, most – there are lots of service interactions that don't have tips, and I think the key then is trying to understand why restaurant tipping is common, but lots of other places where there's service and there's a principal agent problem, you don't see it. You want to speculate about that? Yeah, but let me back up with the, in terms of the chef as well, because yeah. I think the depending on how a restaurant can manage this, the principal agent problem can be shifted around in very creative ways. I know that a number of restaurants, um, the servers or the, the wait staff actually uh, shares their tips with the servers. My son was a, a person who brought out the food and cleaned the tables this, uh, this summer at the Duval Tavern, and I was surprised to find out that he was getting some tips. I said, you're not doing anything important, son, but he's, they, the, the wait staff really wanted him to do a very good job of clearing the table for the next person to come in, so they incentivized him to do a good job by sharing some of their tips. And sometimes they even share this, what, what they call the back of the house, the, the people making the food, because if, if you're 
your salary is based upon the tips that you get. You want to make sure that the order is right. So when the steak comes out and it looks a little bit too done, you're going to say, go back to the table and say, I think we made your uh, steak a little bit too well done, Russ. We're going to take care of that for you. Let me give you another glass of wine. And so it, everybody kind of helps. It, it, this helps to uh, shift the monitoring around, I think, in very creative ways. Now, in terms of other places that we tip, I, I've, I've been thinking about this, too. One thing that has uh, driven me crazy, and this may go back to the, what you were talking about, has tipping uh, been lived past its usefulness, and we've been oversaturated with this, is these self-serve yogurt shops. And I, I love self-serve yogurt shops, uh, but I will go make my own yogurt. I put on my own toppings, and I just go up to the counter. They weigh it and then charge me a certain amount. And then I see a tip jar there. And I, first time I saw that, I said, you've got to be kidding Right? I should be tipping myself because I did such a good <laughs> job. Um, but why am I doing this here? And, and I look at those jars, and for the most part, I just see a few coins in there. And I think what, what is happening is that uh, as inflation has gone up over the years, the, the value of a penny or a couple nickels and a dime uh, loses its uh, – you know, I don't want to carry it in my pockets anymore, so people you know, end up with – a a yogurt for $4.89 and just go ahead and drop the 11 cents into the, the bin. So, you know, the, the people there at the counter can pick up a little bit of the residual um, in terms of that because people don't want to pick it up. Um, but any place, and I've, I've thought about this, I have my students think about this too, any place where you tend to get repeated service interactions and service interactions where you do have to customize the service a little bit. So barber shops are an example yep. of this. Um, coffee shops where you want a specific drink, one of those five adjective lattes with uh, you know, a special smiley face drawn on it. You tend to tip there. I, I, I would tip for a drink like that, but I rarely ever tip for a cup of black coffee. It's just pour me the coffee. That seems pretty easy. It's like a, a trans, transaction at McDonald's. So you, you, when you start going down the list and thinking about those different places, um, you do see where you have repeated interactions. The one place that surprised me, and I didn't learn this until about a year ago, that you're supposed to tip the housekeeping service at hotels. I do. Uh, do you, you do. I do. How I long have it, you? I, I've been doing it for a long time. Uh, okay. I leave... Uh, a dollar a day, sometimes a little more if I've got uh, family members with me who are not as not as clean as I am. Uh, more likely to to leave a mess behind uh, of some kind. Uh, no, I try to leave at least a dollar a day. Um, but but again, that's a strange interaction because I don't see the person. Uh, almost I almost never see the person. Right. And uh, this last trip, I happened to not get maid service, uh, and I just tipped. For for two days, and I just tip double. I just put two or three dollars down more than I normally would because even though I only got one day of service, I figured it's a little dirtier than it normally would have been if I had gotten it every day. Uh, but I want to make a distinction here because I think it's important. I don't know how important this whole topic is. I love it, but it's because <laughs> it's, it's such a fun application of incentives, et cetera. But I think there's a difference between the restaurant and I'm going to I'm going to give you three places where I. I'll give you four places where I tip regularly, okay. um, and I think three of them are, are similar and one's very different, and I think it helps, I think, illuminate the one that's different as well. So I tip my the woman who cuts my hair. Mm -hmm. I tip a person who carries my bags up to my room. Mm -hmm. uh, I also tip um, the person at the airport who checks my bags at the curb. I don't check them inside. I check, but at the curb – Tipping is expected, and I do so. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't, and I tip at restaurants. And okay. the difference between those is that I think three of those are the same. I think in three of those, and those are the non-restaurant ones, uh, the person carrying my bags up in the elevator with me, who who, who unloads them, say from the cart, and the trolley, and puts them on a, a luggage thing. Um, the person who cuts my hair and the maid service at the hotel. I tip in all those situations. I tip the same amount every time. It has nothing to do, I would argue, with the service. There is a chance that if it was really horrific, I wouldn't tip. But I don't think I've ever done that. Um, and in particular, I want to emphasize I always tip the same amount. And the reason I do that is that I understand there's a norm of tipping, which means I understand there's a salary that's been set 
such that the compensation of the employee includes that tip. And I don't want a free ride on that. I want to do my part and live up to that expectation. But it's it, that's it. It's not to ensure promptness, which is the acronym allegedly of some dispute whether that's true mm-hmm. for a, a restaurant tip. But a restaurant tip is all that nuance we talked about before. With that other those other three, it's not so much nuance. I get the same haircut from my the woman who cuts my hair every time. She's really she's fine. She's good. Takes her about literally, I think about eight minutes, maybe twelve. And um, I guess if she took forty, I, maybe I changed uh, unexpectedly. I might change the tip. But I'm not incentivizing her in any way. I'm in those cases, or almost in any way. In those cases, I think I'm just living up to the social expectation that her compensation or the bellboy's compensation or the maid's compensation, they're divided into two parts, and one of them is expected to be paid by me, and uh, I do so. Whereas in the restaurant, if I get spectacular service, meaning a particularly effective or charming or helpful uh, staff experience, I will tip more than 15%. In a bar, I'll definitely tip more than 15% because I think that's the norm, and often I'm you might be fighting to get the bartender to pay attention to you, in which case I'm I'm tipping there often because I'm coming back in about seven minutes. So it's not very unlike the restaurant I'm visiting out of the blue. But I think those are different. And I think the my, my claim is is that in the restaurants we're heading toward that uh experience with the the haircutter and the bellboy and the maid because it's it's just pretty much the same every time. In which case all those wonderful incentive effects you and I love and like to talk about they're not really functioning. It's just sort of a, a norm that's become calcified. I think that in part is true, but I want to interrogate your answer a little bit more, especially when it comes to the, the hotel service. Uh, while carrying the bags up to your room, it seems like a pretty simple task. The question is, are you expecting to get service at other points in time, if you go down to the concierge and say, I'd really like to have a, a restaurant, where could we go? Or if you're having a difficulty carrying something or finding a room at a conference, somebody will go out of their way and help you. What I have found out is that word gets around on who the good tippers are and who aren't. And so when I tip a, a bellboy carrying my bags up um, or the valet parker, I'm somewhat expecting, and maybe I'm overthinking this because I, I been studying this for a while, that uh, the word will get around that, oh, Gil is a really good tipper, make sure that he gets some really nice service there. And there's some evidence to this, because back in the old days, uh, when the bellboys would be taking um, luggage up to different uh, rooms, if somebody got a tip, they would actually mark the bag with a piece of chalk, so that (laughs) other... Uh, bellboys would see this and say, okay, if you didn't have any chalk, it's going to be a little bit harder uh, getting to you and your service. The the same thing, too, is with the the maid service. And again, I was somebody who never thought about tipping the maid service, the housekeeping at at hotels. Um, And then I I was at a Marriott where they actually had a little envelope, and it it was a very subtle suggestion that you do that. And I said, oh, my gosh, yes, maybe I should be. And if I'm there a couple days, especially if I'm at academic conference and I want to come back in early afternoon, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, maybe take a nap or prepare a presentation, I will actually see the housekeeping staff in the hallway and I say, hi, I'm just leaving the room here from 10 to 12. Could my room be made up by that time? And uh, if I'm a good tipper, that the room I've noticed uh, gets made much quicker. So. Yeah, I don't. I don't know about that. I mean, I, and by the way, for those of you who who don't uh, know about this and would like to do it, you don't have to. Of course, it's a norm that you're free to ignore. Um, I don't think any uh, hotel or maid's going to spread the word that you're a bad tipper at your next hotel. So it's a relatively uh, low cost free riding. But That's I true. leave. I always leave the a dollar bill or two dollar, whatever the amount is, under a water glass to make it clear I didn't just empty my pockets and. And forget to, and left a dollar behind. I try to make it clear that I deliberately left it for the the person. But I I, I think there's there's a couple issues here. You remind me of a point I, that I did not make, which is sometimes a little uneasy about uh, whether I'm going to see my bag again. So or my car. We're talking about valet yeah. parking. So I will tip. Sometimes I'll tip tip before and after uh, because I want to make sure that they take care of my bag or my car. Um, in particular, if I'm leaving my bag at a hotel after I've checked out and I'm going to, or I, they haven't checked in yet, and they're holding my bag at the at the 
station there, uh, I will often tip beforehand because I want to make it clear that don't please don't break into my bag or lose it. And it's a sort of my uh, it's a little bit of an extortion there, a little bit for and, and blackmail. In it's not a nice way to def- describe it. Obviously, it's I'm exaggerating. Oh. People have described it that way before, though. It was Samuel Gompers, the, um, one of the, the union leaders early in the 20th century, was writing about uh, wages and uh, noticed that there's all this tipping in the hotel industry, and he wrote to the effect that this is nothing short of extortion. Um, so yeah, many people have, have uh, viewed it that way. In fact, there's you know one of the dangers of, of tipping, and I, I recognize this fully as a danger, is that if everybody starts putting their hands out for tipping, it it, it really is going to discourage a lot of business. So this is one of these norms that it could be very fragile. If you, if, you over, if you try to ask for too many tips in too many places, it just might have a, a harmful effect on the, the norm in general. Yeah, I've got to bring up a uh, photograph I took uh, a few weeks ago because this is another piece of this puzzle we haven't talked about. See if I can find it. Um, I was at the Phillips Museum, which is in uh, – yeah, I found it here. It's in downtown uh, – Washington, D.C., they have uh, the Boating Party by Renoir is the prize of their collection, and they have a very nice exhibit. I don't know how long it goes till. Uh, but if you're interested in Renoir, the Boating Party, or art generally, you might enjoy it. So I was there with my wife, and there's and she checked a coat. And I, I want to mention, by the way, that there are times I take my own bags up because I don't want to deal with that interaction of the tip. And I also mm-hmm. don't want – not to save the money. I just don't want – I don't want the other person with me on the elevator and – um, if I can carry it, I'm happy doing it. There's something luxurious and pleasant about somebody carrying your bag for you. If I'm in, sometimes I might be in that mood, but a lot of times I'll take it out myself because I just don't want that interaction at all. Um, so at the coat room of the Phillips Museum, there is a sign because coat rooms are a place that there is tipping sometimes for the reasons similar to the bag and and as a way to prevent anything's going wrong. Some people tip and they tip as a thank you after. But at the Phillips, it says, no big sign, uh, big letters, no tipping, thank you. If, I don't know why they're saying thank you. Thank you for not tipping. Uh, if you feel the need, please donate to the museum via the cash box near the entrance. <laughs> so, which is a bizarro sign. You know, I, 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 the need, I feel, is to thank the person who handed me my coat in a pleasant way. But it, it kind of makes my point that, They've, they've raised the salary of that person high enough that they don't want us with that unease about the tipping. Uh, how much should I tip? Is it 50 cents? Is it a dollar? Is it $2? And I think they just try to get rid of that social discomfort by saying uh, no tipping and then to get make sure people still work that window. They pay them enough to make it worth their while without a tip. It's an interesting example, and there's a little bit of history behind the, the coat and hat checks that I've, I've discovered that uh, relates to this, is that I am betting the museum actually employs the person who is taking your coat and hat and umbrella. But back in history, 100, 150 years ago or so, when hotels became more popular, uh, you actually had the people who ran the coat checks were contractors to the hotel, and they would bid a price. Um, it wasn't owned by the hotel, and so they were oftentimes uh, uh, making a calculation that says, well, if people tip us, I'm willing to you know, bid $100 to be there with the expectation that I might get $150, $200 worth of tips over time. So a, a really kind of fascinating uh, thing, and it's a very East Coast thing, too. This is where the old hotels were, the grand hotels back in the, the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. Out here in the West Coast, we don't even have hat checks, so I don't I, – I, it's kind of an odd problem for me to experience to begin with. I remember I was out in D.C. one time, and somebody said they asked me if I wanted to take my hat, and I said, no, let me explain to you about property rights. Uh, so. Never see it again if you're not, if you're not careful. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, so. just, just to finish this section up, I think, I, think, um, I think a couple things. One is – I'd be interested in data, which I don't have, and I don't know if you have, on the variation in tips across customers. There are people who don't tip because they don't know uh, in all these settings, either because they come from a culture where there's no tipping or or they're not nice. They don't want to – they want to avoid having to pay that amount. But my guess is, is that over time, the amount that people tip, the variance in it has shrunk. 
that a lot of people mechanically leave a 15% tip. So that's the first point I want to make. And then I'm going to make one more. um, And that would mean that this whole story is not really that effective. There is some effect in quality because there's always the risk that you won't get tipped well. Um, The other thing I want to argue, I don't agree with it, but uh, I don't. I think there's an entangling of living wage and um, I'll never forget the restaurant I was in that had said um, on the bottom of the menu, we um, we support the tipping system until a better one is found. Okay, that's lovely. So they wanted, they wanted to let you know that they're against it, but they're stuck with it. Um, but you could. A restaurant's alternative to that we haven't really made clear is they could pay a much higher wage, 15% higher would be one – amount. Uh, 20% might be even better. I don't want to think of that as a living wage. I think that's a, that confuses public policy with a restaurant's own choices, right? Restaurants right. free to pay their service whatever they want uh, within the letter of the law of, of minimum wage. So, And of course, minimum wage often, at least historically, would allow for servers to make a – they had a lower minimum wage for restaurant employees because they understood that there were tips being paid. But you could pay above that and then say no tipping. And a customer goes in there knowing that they don't have to tip and that as a result uh, – but their prices are going to be a little bit higher because the uh, servers are being paid more. And then the threat of losing your job is, is very high because you don't want to lose that higher-paying job. So a restaurant that offers uh, a no-tip model and pays its servers more than the competition because they don't have tipping – is holding the threat of being fired as the monitoring mechanism, and, and that could work. And I think mm-hmm. there are—I don't know—are there? There must be some restaurants that don't have tipping. I have a feeling, or where it's yeah, automatic. There, yeah, as, as we mentioned uh, five years ago, this this trend toward no tipping uh, took off, and you know, people were very excited about. It, but it hasn't expanded very well. But most of the places that I've seen with no tipping tend to be. Higher-end restaurants, they tend to be a little bit smaller, more boutique kind of wine and uh, wine bar type of, of restaurants. And, and these are places that are going to have a higher uh, income clientele. They can afford to pay their servers a lot more. And since the places are smaller, there's, it's a little bit easier to do this. So most of those restaurants are actually hiring uh, experienced wait staff who've been in the industry for 10, 15 years have a proven track record and, and you know, can make that choice. Of, hey, okay, I, I think uh, working at Olive Garden now for five years, I've, I've really proven myself. I can really take up a jump, and I, I like the security of having this, this stable wage. It's places like uh, an Olive Garden or a Denny's where you have a lot of first-time employees that are not familiar with the subtleties of the service industry uh, where this becomes really important. And I think that signaling mechanism that, yes, you're doing a great job, you're not doing a great job, uh, is, is very useful. And just one more point. Uh, I was thinking about Uber. We've had a whole, I don't know, uh, 40 minutes of a podcast about mentioning Uber, which is, of course, a perennial <laughs> topic at Econ Talk. Uh, Uber, for a long time, had no tips. Mm-hmm. They've now, with the exit of Travis uh, Kalanick, a driver told me that he was, he was really adamantly opposed to tips. I don't know how this driver knows this, but driver told me that once he left, uh, Uber put in the opp- opportunity for a voluntary tip, which, of course, tips by definition are always voluntary. But right. by, they put it into the app where they would say, would you like to give a tip? And I'm, I wish that – I think that's unfortunate uh, as an Uber customer, and I think it's interesting that they decided to do that. The way I – before this happened, the way I tip my drivers by giving them five stars. Um, uh, a tip is like a sixth star, but it's even better than that for, for – uh, driver because they get to spend it and the stars just merely keep their job so i guess the existing management felt they would uh make the drivers happier even though it would make some customers less happy makes me less happy again for the same reason i just don't know not sure what the right amount is they give you some options when you pull up the app a dollar two dollars uh they don't i don't think it's in percentage terms as the default uh but to me part of the appeal of of uber is that i didn't have to think about that but now i do because I don't want to do the wrong thing. Um, well, I should say, uh-oh here, because um, I was asked to write an op-ed piece for Fortune magazine back in, I think it was May of this year. I think it was like May 20th. And um, 
a, a, almost exactly a month later, Uber went uh, and put tips on. I think my, the title of my article was why Uber should have tips. And then they went and did that. When I went and told all my friends, I said, I got Uber to get tips now. Everybody just threw tomatoes <laughs> at me. It was, it, was, it was a horrible thing. And I, I have to admit, I finally um, took my first Uber ride about a month ago, and I, I did four or five of them, I think, uh, within a, a span of a few days. And I always engaged the, the drivers saying, oh, what do, you, what do you think about this, this new tipping thing? And they, uh, again, it's a very small sample size of only four or five drivers, and they all universally loved it. And I um, left my tip not on the app, but in cash. Oh, that uh, sounds a strategy, yeah. Yeah, I'm still an old person. I carry cash, and so. Uh, but uh, younger folks, I guess, I find uh, do not have cash, and so uh, having the tip on the app is is uh, important there. Yeah, cash cash is um, it's an unexplored topic by economists. But um, when I was trying to get tickets to Les Mis when it opened in uh, 1985, I think it was, and I've told part of this story on Econ Talk before, but I was trying to get somebody to, to sell. I couldn't get a ticket. Sold out, and uh, my wife and I showed up at the theater about ten minutes for reasons not worth going into. About ten minutes before the show started, figuring, well, at least we have a shot at getting a scalp ticket. Couldn't get anyone to give me one to sell us one. And then, uh, well, that's not true. There was a somebody wanted to sell us one for I think a huge amount of money and two separate seats and not not next to each other. And we said no. But there were there was a. One woman standing there who clearly was waiting for someone who hadn't showed up yet. And I took out, I think it was, this is 1985, I think I took out $120 in cash, six twenties, and held them up in her face and said, your friend's not here. Uh, I verified that she lived in the city. And I said, take your friend to dinner when your friend shows up and I'll go see the tickets, the show, because this is my only time to see it. And she snatched the money out of my hand with great zeal, thrust the tickets on me, and uh, my wife and I got to see Les Mis, which was really fun. But I always thought the visceral role that that cash played may have may have helped uh, of having it be visible. Uh, it turned out, by the way, they were student tickets, which is probably uh, illegal uh, by theater the rules of the theater. We end up using student tickets that that she had paid. I don't know. $10 for, I think. Uh, so she had a very nice dinner and came back probably and got the student tickets another time. It worked out very well. Um, well, you certainly benefited in the gains from trade there, and I think only a trained economist would have been able to do that. Yeah. <laughs> right. I didn't feel any, any – other than the fact that they were in the last row of the theater or next to last row, yeah. I didn't feel any uh, disappointment that I had paid much more than uh, she had paid. Uh, I was very happy to see it. And when, I w- when it was over, I was even happier. It's one of the most exhilarating – uh, theater experiences, artistic experiences of my life. I found it just an amazing show the first time. Um, let's move on back to tipping. Uh, okay. Let's talk about price discrimination. I don't, I didn't understand that argument in the paper. So, t- what's the argument there? So this actually connects to what you just said, is that you were very excited about going to Les Mis show and you flashed out $120 and the, the student there had only paid $10 for it. So the, those tickets, those assets were actually being allocated to its higher value use. Yay, verily, for the gains for trade. We all celebrate as economists because this is something that we, we want to see happen quite a bit. Um, and this is what I'm arguing here with price discrimination. Now, price discrimination is about trying to figure out who is going to share more of the gains from trade that actually occur. And I, I love this topic because I, I tell my students who want to be entrepreneurs that, you know, it, it's fun to think of all the different ways to figure out what somebody's reserve buy price is, the highest price that they're willing to pay for this, and then try to get that amount shifted to you in the gains from trade, understanding that people have different preferences. They Some people have very high reserve buy prices. Other people have very uh, low reserve buy prices. And this factors, I think, into the, the discussion of tipping because it allows, if, if you shift some of the responsibility of payment for the entire restaurant experience to the customer, you're able to capture individuals who have very low reserve buy prices and may not be big tippers, but also still attract people who might be big tippers. And those people are the ones who uh, give 20, 25, or 30% here. Uh, let's start with the basic idea here that one of the, the biggest problems that any restaurant face, faces is empty tables. 
It's just a deadweight loss there. And if you're uh, a manager at a restaurant and the tables are not filled and you still have to have wait staff uh, waiting just in case there is a rush that comes in, it's a lot of uncertainty there, um, you, you need to fill those up. And one of the ways to fill those up is to keep your prices as low as possible so that you can find customers that might not want to pay a whole lot and have them fill in the seats. Restaurants do these in a number of ways. They have senior citizen discounts because us old folks like to eat at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and get to bed by 8 o'clock. They might have happy hours for individuals coming by for work. Um, But I think another one that kind of focuses in here is, is tipping and that there's a certain set a cost that the restaurant has to pay, the food price, the ingredient, the rent, uh, the electricity for the ovens and all that kind of stuff that they have to pay. And those are are pretty fixed costs um, that would be difficult for them to manipulate. But the service, as we talked about before, can oftentimes be customized here. And it's beneficial for the owner of the restaurant to say, listen, here's here's a norm in society. If, If 15% 15% is expected or perhaps 20% is expected. But if you have a really good time, if you love the service, please feel free to give 25%. Uh, if the service is not good, well, then you might have to give less. That's the, the principal agent problem. But by allowing the customer to decide what they're going to pay for their uh, the service that they get, you, you can separate out customers who are very gregarious with their tipping. I, I'm one of these people. I love to tip, and if I get great service, it's going to be 25%. So they want to attract me, but they also don't want to discourage individuals who are not big tippers. Maybe they say, I only think people should get 10%, um, whereas the, the wait staff might not appreciate those folks as much. The owner does like to see them sitting in the tables, especially when the uh, alternative are empty seats. So for that reason, the, the restaurant wants to keep these, the, the base price for the entire experience fairly low and then let the customer kind of what I call voluntary price discriminate uh, based upon this social norm. And I, I, the more I think about that, I think it's, it's kind of a, a very cool idea. I don't understand. I don't agree with it. I guess I was going to be polite and okay. say I don't understand it. I actually don't. It's worse than that. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I'll be honest. I don't agree with it. I think for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, I, I take the point about the fixed costs. We've talked to that, about that a little bit on Econ Talk, and I think that's takeout. So if I want, uh, if I want no service, I have an option called takeout, and the restaurant right. prices that differently. And that's that. By the way, is another re- way that the tipping. Uh, helps change the price, although you, there are other ways you could solve the problem, obviously. Um, but it, but you don't – I don't think you don't – what you don't want is – let's say here, – here's the problem. You could argue there are people who don't want much service and then people want a lot of service. And the people who want a lot of service, they're going to tip more. The people who want a little bit of service are going to tip less, and that's great because they don't use as much of the wait staff. The real problem is, is that the tip isn't related to how much service I get. It's related to the quality of the service. Because mm-hmm. as you pointed out before, there are people who don't want to interact much with the wait with the wait staff. And I'm going to give them a big tip. <laughs> I'm not going to give them a small tip. So mm-hmm. I don't see it as capturing my demand for um, for service. And the other problem I have, what's the other problem I have? I'll let you answer that, and then I'll then I'll um, think of my other problem. Well, let me let me try to present this in a way where a restaurant goes to a no gratuities model. So let's say that the average price of a, a meal is, let's say, $20. And uh, you have different people, some people who value service, and they can value different service. They, the, the service they could value is, please leave me alone. Uh, leaving me alone is really great service, but other service might be, yes, please talk to me and tell me the interesting things going on in town. And, and again, that can vary by individuals in time. Um, so some people are willing to pay for that differences in qualities of service. Um, okay, so we have a base price of $20 for the meal, but then the rest, and then allows for tipping. Then the restaurant decides to say, okay, we're going to end tipping and we're going to add additional cost to the meal. And it's might, when it all is said and done, adds another, let's say, $2.50 to the meal. That might be enough of a difference that it chases some of these people who are not very service oriented, whether it be very good service or leave me alone type service away from the restaurant. 
they, they were coming in and says a $20 meal, I'm willing to give a dollar, dollar fifty tip. Now it's $22.50 um, that I have to pay. Boy, I just can't do that anymore. So that chases those individuals away. The problem for the restaurant owner is they don't know what the mix of those customers uh, happens to be at any given moment in time. And so they, they want to try to hit the lowest reserve price they possibly can and then shift the 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 ability to decide, do I want to share more of the gains from trade with the wait staff or not uh, to the customer? Yeah, I don't think that works. The reason I don't think it works yeah. is that if I come in for my $20 meal and I don't tip, then I'm not covering the cost of the wait staff. And so I'm free riding on that. And that ends up being paid uh, either by um, waiters and waitresses quitting and mm-hmm. high turnover in the part of the restaurant. The restaurant doesn't want that. I mean, that's a disaster. And, and in fact, I would argue that the people who, who, who tip poorly, as you point out in the paper, they're going to have, if they become known as poor tippers, then obviously this is going to be a different scenario when you have repeat customers versus one-time customers. If you have repeat customers who tip poorly, they're, they're going to draw less attention from your wait staff, which is not a good thing from the owner's perspective. Unless you want to argue that, well, they're not really willing to pay the full cost of the meal, which is in fact twenty two fifty, right? If the meal costs twenty two fifty because twenty of it is for the everything else and two fifty is to cover the cost of the time of the waiter of the waiter or waitress, then the person who gets away with the twenty is just is taking money, and I don't want that customer. I don't I, I don't want that customer. If that was common, uh, you'd have to get rid of tipping. Uh, because it wouldn't, it, the system would not uh, would not be effective. I think that's the flip side of of people uh, of doing the monitoring for you. It's not just um, the doing the monitoring; they're also keeping the wait staff happily employed. Right, and I would agree with that. If you have a customer who comes in repeatedly and doesn't cover the cost of the food, beverage, and the service, uh, that customer can be rather problematic. And if, you, if that's the bulk of your customers, that's a disastrous model for you. But the question is, to what extent are these just occasional diners that come in? Now, the person who doesn't tip and cover the cost of the service uh, maybe once every three months or so is, might not be that big of a problem in terms of your labor cost, but at least you're still filling a table. Right. Yeah, I take that point. I think that's. Yeah. The, I think that point, and and it, in which case you want to have uh, you want to, you'd have to argue for that to be true that you have tipping in quiet times or different kinds of encouragement, different norm for tipping maybe in quiet times. Mm-hmm. Um, I know. I, let's. I don't want to. I don't want to miss our conversation about um, tipping in um, places you never expect to come back to. So let's move on to that. Let's talk about why is it. And I certainly have done this numerous times. I suspect you have too. Why is it that people tip in um, restaurants they'll never come back to, cabs they'll never be in again? And, of course, many people would listening to this would say only an economist would think this is a puzzle. But uh, go ahead. It, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it seems like such a horrible thing. But it, I think only an economist who hasn't read Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments would think that's the problem. <laughs> yeah, I know that's my man. The, your, your favorite books, but because uh, we always have that impartial observer sitting somewhere in the background wagging our finger at us if we're not uh, obeying social etiquette or something. The argument I make here, and this, this is a perennial problem, let's restate it so the people understand it, that if I'm driving across country and I stop at a roadside diner that I know I'm never going to come back to, uh, they charge me $10 for a meal and are expecting a tip, well, I don't have to leave a tip because I'm not going to come back, so I'm not expecting future service, and I paid the tip at the end of the meal, and so everything's said and done by the time I pay the bill, so there's no reason I should pay a tip, but we know that lots and lots of people still tip. Tip. And the argument here is because that's how we were taught growing up that that is what you do. That's what kind people do. That's what we do here in the United States. It's a very important norm. And the question then becomes, why is this the norm? It just seems so odd. And I, one of the areas that I, I think economists have not paid enough attention to is this issue of of norms within society. There are rules, there are social etiquette or manners that allow us to negotiate between individuals. The space on a bus, whether you get 
in front of a line, whether you hold the door open for uh, older people or not. Those, those are important things that we do on a day-to-day basis that you know, establish reputations between individuals. Now, the argument I make here is that as market economies grow, and this is, goes back to Adam Smith, specialization is important for an economy to grow, and, but you need to expand the market as, um, as specialization increases. But as markets expand, a trade becomes more anonymous. And as trade becomes more anonymous, I start to worry about whether or not I know the intentions of somebody else. And if I'm very nervous about whether or not somebody is going to fairly trade with me, that they're going to give me the product that they specified, the quality that they specified, I might be very reluctant to do that. And so I think that society has developed a number of norms of signaling trust throughout society to, to enhance the ability for anonymous trade. Now, this gets real fuzzy. This is not something that can be easily modeled, uh, saying, well, who was the person that first decided it? Did they consciously decide it? Um, or, you know, what, is, what, are, what are the actual mechanisms here? It gets a little murky. So, um, but I think these, we have a number of these different types of moral codes. Gift-giving is another one, and I, I study uh, the economics of religion, the burnt sacrifices or burnt offerings that uh, signal that I'm willing to pay a very high price to join your club, to join your religious organization, um, or to give you a gift because I want to show you that I care. Because in the future, at some point in time, I hope that we have a fruitful relationship. We engage in trade. We sit down and enjoy each other's company. Um, so I'm willing to to burn some resources. And I think that's what tipping in part represents, that you burn some resources when you really don't have to to signal to the rest of the world that says, hey, I'm, I'm a pretty good person, and if everybody else does that, I'll know that everybody else is a good person, and so that'll just make our future interactions a little bit easier. Now, does anybody go through that calculation in their head when they're, they're leaving a tip at a roadside diner? I don't think so. But uh, this is one of these things that your parents taught you, they taught you at school, and your, your friends and colleagues oftentimes teach you. And, and I, I ask my students when they get a little bit skeptical on this kind of argument, like, hey, is that really what goes on? I said, well, if you, if you go out on a first date and you're thinking about this person might be my future spouse and living with them for a long time, and we go to a restaurant and the person doesn't tip very well, what does that tell you? And people go, oh, yeah, I won't go out with that person again. Well, it tells you that, yeah, they, they're they a little bit cheap and they're willing to cut corners at times. And, you know, sometime in the future when the going gets rough, I don't want the person who's going to cut corners. I want a person who I know can trust. And I should note that uh, my own personal story is one time I went out on a first date and um, with a very nice lady and I pulled out a coupon to pay at the end of the meal. And that was the last time I ever had that date. So um, <laughs> I ever dated that person. So th- these signals uh, are very subtle and I, they're kind of woven into the fabric of our society. Um, I, I don't know how these things get started, how they are perpetuated. Um, interesting thing to think about, but I, I think there's something to it there. I think the right word there is opportunism. Um, if you act opportunistically, uh, mm-hmm. you're sometimes considered clever. Wow, you avoided having to pay the tip. But that's not a characteristic I want in a spouse. It is someone who will think of themselves over the person across from them, right? And mm-hmm. I think the I think the key part of the the impartial spectator and the norm of tipping in that diner is that I saw that person's face. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I interacted with them as a human being and I know they expected a tip. So yes, uh, I could happily, or actually not in my case, but one could happily not leave a tip and feel smug and smart. Wow. I, I, I would, I did the, the, profitable thing I, I avoided that extra charge and now i can drive down the road and have more money for something else but just like the, econ 101 taught me right exactly right. <laughs> i'm maximizing my utility leave me alone yeah. but but i saw that person's face and although we didn't talk about it beforehand i know that there was an expectation that i would live up to my side of the bargain they lived up to their side of the bargain they brought the food they smiled they did their all the right stuff and, of course, they're not really working for me. They're working for their employer, but they are working for me. And I didn't live up to my side. Now, some people can get to light in that, but I would argue, as Adam Smith would, 
They don't have so many friends. Having said all that, having said all that, I would suspect that people who work in roadside diners that get a lot of transient traffic might have slightly higher wages because the average tip will be lower. So it doesn't work perfectly. I, I always want to make that em- emphasize that point. No, I, I think that's true, and it would be, be an interesting study to, to conduct uh, the places that have much more transient t- type of uh, restaurant uh, customers than, say, the local uh, neighborhood diner where everybody knows your name. Um, I, I think that would be the case. You'd also have to control for a lot of things that many of these roadside diners are in places that have lower living standards, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so we'd have true. to put our the denizens <laughs> of regression analysis to work for us. Yeah, lower rents to cover to attract people to live there. Yeah, for exactly. sure. Yeah. My guest today has been Anthony Gill. Uh, his podcast is called Research on Religion. Tony, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Been a joy. Thank you, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.